Uh, It's lovely to see you, and particularly those of you who are with us for the first time. Uh, You are especially welcome. Uh, You need to know uh, something about the way this works. On the inside of the white bulletin, uh, you'll find an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes, and you'll find it helpful, I think, to have it open in front of you. And the green question sheet is... uh, a series of questions on the passage we're looking at today, which we look at in our home groups on Wednesday and with the students at college on Saturday morning. So keep those two things in mind. And if you are with us for the first time, we would love to see you at a home group on Wednesday evening and you can find out a little bit more about what goes on in the life of the church. But for now, let's, um, let's bow our heads and ask for the Lord's help as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. We thank you that the scriptures are God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And so we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely, needful, helpful and wonderful. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John 5, verses 16 to 24, under the title, What Jesus is Doing Today. Excuse me. Now this is the first Sunday in Lent. We've said that several times. And during Lent, we are preparing our hearts for Easter. Uh, For centuries, Easter has been the most important weekend in the Christian calendar. Uh, It is the time when we remember the historical events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, in most churches, most believers will have some understanding about what happened then and what it means for us today that these are real historical events with eternal significance. But having said that, I think what people are much less clear about is what Jesus is doing today. I mean, is Jesus simply uh, waiting for God to give the signal to wind up human history? Or is Jesus still involved in our world in some way? And if he is... What's he actually doing? Now last week we were studying the healing at the pool at Bethesda and if you weren't here, you can listen to the talk uh, from the website. And we saw that that miracle was a sign. It was a sign that in the ministry of Jesus, God was beginning to fulfil his promise to bring in the new creation, uh, to bring in a new world without all of the horrible things that are pulling our world apart today. It's a world with no poverty, no hospitals, no funerals. It's a wonderful promise, a marvellous thing to be looking forward to. And in our passage this morning, Jesus explains how he's going to do it. And what a very remarkable passage it is. Indeed, you GWC students especially need to know that the section from verse 16 to verse 30 
is probably the most important passage in the whole of John's Gospel on the deity of Christ. So we're going to be devoting two Sundays to just 15 verses. This week we're going to be thinking about what Jesus is doing today and logically I hope next week we'll be looking at what Jesus will be doing tomorrow. And because what we have here are the claims that the Lord Jesus makes about himself, we need to listen, don't we, with the utmost care to these verses. So, what is Jesus doing today? Well, he's doing at least three things. And the first is that he is revealing God to men. Verses 16 to 20. Now, Iran is one of the most dangerous countries on earth in which to be a Christian. It's ranked number nine on the Open Doors World Watch list. Uh, Churches are forbidden and converting from Islam is punishable by death for men and life imprisonment for women. Uh, Christians are routinely imprisoned and tortured In fact, uh, Iran executes more people per capita than any other country in the world. And a large proportion of those being executed belong to religious minority groups. Yes, Iran is a very hard place to be a Christian, but the church is thriving. The experts say that Iran has the fastest growing evangelical community in the world with an estimated annual growth rate of 20%. I've no idea what it is here, but I'm sure it's only in single figures. Isn't that remarkable? Apparently, more Iranians have become Christians in the last two decades than in the previous 13 centuries combined. Now, what on earth are we to make of that? Well, no doubt there are many ways to understand it. Uh, For a start, I think it reminds us that God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of all men, whether they acknowledge him or not. That means, doesn't it, that no hostile government can finally prevail over the purposes of Almighty God. But it also reminds us that there is something in the makeup of every human being that wants to find God, that wants to know God, however difficult their personal circumstances might be. And what we discover in the Gospel of John is that the only way a person can ever come to know God is through Jesus. Now, in our passage, uh, the context is that Jesus is on a collision course with the religious authorities. Uh, Verse 16 tells us uh, the reason for that. Just have a look at it. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Now, I have to say that John's language here is very specific. He is not saying that Jesus performed one healing miracle on one particular Sabbath and that from then on the authorities never left him alone. He's not saying that. 
Now, John says that Jesus was in the habit of doing these things quite regularly on the Sabbath. It was standard practice. And when pressed to explain himself, Jesus said that he was doing this because this is what God does. That's what it says in verse 17, isn't it? My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. In other words, just as God the Father can never take a day off without the entire universe grinding to a halt, Jesus says, I too have got to work a seven-day week. And every educated Jew within earshot knew precisely what Jesus was saying, that he was making himself equal with God. Now, of course, what uh, Jesus says here was just as offensive to the Jewish audience then as it is to many people today. So Jesus goes on to explain exactly what he means. And the importance of what Jesus says in these verses is immediately obvious from the repetition of a little phrase we're getting to know rather well, I tell you the truth. And you'll find that three times in the passage. Once in verse 19, again in verse 24, and again in verse 25, which we didn't look at, which I'm going to comment on. Now, in a previous study, we saw, didn't we, that this is a phrase that we only ever find on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. And whenever we come across it, it is a signal that what Jesus is about to say is unusually important. So in verse 19, Jesus says, please look at it, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself, he can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Whatever does that mean? Well, the clue that unlocks the whole thing is the little word C, S-double-E. He can do only what he sees his father doing. The word see is an especially important word in John's Gospel. So if you cast your mind back to chapter 1, you'll remember that John says in the prologue, no one has ever seen God except God the one and only. In other words, only Jesus sees God. And here in chapter 5, what we're being told is that because we see Jesus in his words and works recorded for us in the Gospel, we are seeing the Father. Are you getting the logic of that? That's what Jesus is saying in verse 19. A helpful illustration, I think, can be found a bit later on, so keep one finger in John 5 and turn ahead to John 14 on page 762. <clears throat> page 762, John 14, verse 8. Now, the situation at this point in chapter 14 is that Jesus has just told the disciples he's going to be betrayed and horrible things will follow. And the disciples are understandably very upset. 
Hoping for comfort, Philip says to Jesus uh, in verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now, it couldn't possibly be plainer, could it? As we see Jesus at work in the Gospel, we are actually seeing God the Father. When we see Jesus restoring broken lives or delivering people from death or forgiving sinners or feeding the hungry, which we'll see in a fortnight's time, we are seeing God at work. So you see, we we must never, never fall into the trap of creating an image of God out of our own imagination. Lots of people today are doing precisely that. But they will always be a million miles off course. Because what we've got to do is fix our eyes on Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we will begin to know God. We'll come back to chapter 5, because before we move on, I want you to notice just how complete this revelation is. In verse 20, Jesus says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. So you see, Jesus hasn't just given us a limited revelation of Almighty God. It's not that. It is a perfect revelation in the sense that it's complete. He shows us all he does. God has uh, shown Jesus everything about himself with nothing kept back. So can you see that if we discipline ourselves to get to know Jesus as we find him in the pages of Scripture then there will be no nasty surprises for us in the future. The revelation of God that we have in Jesus is perfect. Jesus is revealing God to men. But then secondly, the second thing Jesus is doing today is he is giving life to the dead. One of the most Uh, admired, I think, of the classical composers is Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, Bach was a committed Christian and uh, many of his works were written specifically for use in Christian worship. But throughout his life, Bach had a profound sense of human sinfulness Uh, and it was a theme that he wrote about time and time again in his marvellous choruses. In fact, he wrote about it so often and with such intensity of feeling that for 200 years after his death, his choral works were usually performed without the words. People absolutely loved the music, but uh, they found the words simply too depressing. 
In fact, people couldn't really understand how the same person could write such depressing words about the human condition and at the same time set it to music that is so full of joy and celebration. And I think, therefore, for many, re- uh, for many people, Bach's work seemed to be something of a contradiction. But I have to tell you, it is not a contradiction. Because Bach had experienced God's power to give life to people who don't deserve it. And he understood that that in itself is a cause for marvellous celebration. Now that is the message of verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Now in the Old Testament, only God has power to give life. But here, Jesus says, God has given that same power to him. What I find so very interesting in this passage is that Jesus talks about giving life to people at two different moments in time. I wonder if you spotted it. In verse 21, Jesus is clearly talking about giving life to people when they are physically dead. That's what Jesus meant, isn't it, when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, you're going to die physically, but after that, you're going to enter into life. But in verse 24, Jesus says something really rather different. He says, I tell you the truth, there's that phrase again, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life, present tense, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Now, can you see here that in verse 24, Jesus is not talking about life after physical death. No, he's talking about having eternal life now. He's describing something that happens to me in this present life when I hear his word and I believe it. I don't know if you've ever taken time to walk around a a graveyard and uh, look at some old gravestones. It's something you can do rather more easily in England than you can here. But if you do, you'll sometimes find words rather like this. Uh, John Smith, born and then the date of his birth, and then the words, entered into life, and the date of his death. Now, in a sense, that is quite wrong. Uh, We know what it means. Uh, It means that when he died, John Smith entered into the fullest experience of life in the presence of the Lord Jesus. But you see, the Bible insists that a person enters into eternal life at the very moment of their conversion. I wonder if you knew that when you came to church this morning. The very minute that they hear Jesus' words and put their trust in him, eternal life begins. Now, of course, 
these two time frames that I've just mentioned are very closely connected, aren't they? So the sign that Jesus will give life to my physical body after I die is that he gives me eternal life now while I yet live. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, according to this passage, having eternal life now means at least three things are true for me today that were not true before. First, it means that I have a new family. Where before God was just a category in my thinking, G-O-D, he is now my father. And whilst Jesus is my saviour, praise God for that, he is also my brother. And every other believer is my brother and my sister too. Secondly, having eternal life means that I have a new hope. Before Jesus gave me this precious gift of eternal life, death held all kinds of terrors for me. Not least, of course, the prospect of standing before Almighty God in the judgment of the last day. But now, Jesus says, doesn't he, in verse 24, that I have crossed from death to life and I will not be condemned. Literally, uh, verse 24 says, literally translated, I will not come into judgment. I'll say more about that in a moment. But thirdly, having eternal life means I have a new priority. Now this is very important. In verse 23 we read that God gave the Son sovereign authority over life and judgment. Why? So that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father who sent him. Now please will you let those words sink in for a moment. He who does not honour the Son, does not honour the Father who sent him. Can you see how Jesus' words in verse 23 eliminate any possibility of a person being right with God apart from Jesus Christ. Can you see that? Lots of people think they can. Verse 23 says it is a sheer impossibility. J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of Liverpool towards the end of the 19th century and he wrote a superb little commentary on John's Gospel And I've given you one of his comments on the back of the green question sheet uh, on this verse. This is what he has to say. Whenever, therefore, anyone through ignorance or pride or unbelief neglects Christ but professes at the same time to honour God, he is committing a mighty error and so far from pleasing God, is greatly displeasing him. The more a man honours Christ and makes much of him, the more the Father is pleased. 
It's rather good, isn't it? So, so the hallmark of a person who has received the gift of eternal life is that he honours Jesus Christ. But what does that mean in practice? Well, it's not a, a perfect analogy, so I apologise for it in advance, but I'd like you for a moment to think about the world of international diplomacy. I come from England. When the Queen uh, sends an ambassador to another country, that country doesn't treat him like any other ordinary citizen. No, the ambassador, you see, represents the Queen. And the host country deals with him as if they were dealing with the Queen herself. Uh, They treat him with the same honour and dignity. And uh, in the world of international diplomacy, to abuse the ambassador is to abuse the Queen. So, using that rather feeble analogy, um, honouring Christ means worshipping him in exactly the same way that we worship God. But honouring Christ also means much more than that. Honouring Christ also means following his example. You see, if Christ, who has equal honour and dignity with God the Father, and that's what we're reading about in this passage, if he was willing to submit completely to the Father's will, doing only what he saw his Father doing and saying only what he heard his Father saying, shouldn't we also follow his example? Don't you think? That's certainly, of course, how the Apostle Paul understood it. But because I suspect we're a little fuzzy on it, let's have a 30-second refresher course. Keep a finger, please, in John and turn to Philippians 2 on page 831. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, page 831. This is how the Apostle Paul understood what it means for us to follow the example of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Are we all there? I'll wait till I, the rustling of pages has stopped and then I know we're all on the same page. Philippians 2 and verse 5. Now listen to this. Listen to it. Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now friends, just look back at verses 7 and 8. Because verses 7 and 8 are a very searching test, aren't they? Can I ask, are verses 7 and 8 
a fair description of your attitude. If they are, that's a very good sign that you are right with God. But if they are not, if as I look inside myself, I don't see any real evidence of humility and servant-heartedness towards my brothers and sisters, particularly at church, or any real willingness to obey the will of God, well, these verses are warning me to do something about it before it's too late. Well, come back to John. So what then is Jesus doing today? Well, we've learned so far two things. He is revealing God to men and he's giving life to the dead. But then lastly, Jesus is dispensing perfect justice. Now, we've already touched on this and I'm going to say more about it next week, so you must be here for that. But let me make one very brief comment on it before we close. In verse 22, Jesus says something very remarkable. He says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, it's difficult for us to grasp, but those words would have been absolutely astonishing to a first century Jew. Because in the Old Testament, only God has the authority to judge mankind. And his authority to do it is grounded in his perfect knowledge of every detail of our lives. So for the Lord Jesus to say that God has entrusted this responsibility to him must mean that the Son has the same perfect knowledge of every human heart as Almighty God. Please notice once again that this responsibility is comprehensive because the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So Almighty God isn't reserving the especially tricky cases for himself. Jesus has got all of them. Now will you just think for a moment about the implications of that for our witnessing as we go through the season of Lent. And I hope we're all thinking and praying about this. Uh, some of you will have seen Holman Hunt's marvellous painting of Christ knocking at the door. And uh, a great deal of our witnessing today <coughs> is motivated by the sentiments in that picture. Because we're often encouraged, aren't we, to tell our unbelieving friends that Christ is uh, waiting very patiently and politely uh, outside the door of their lives and just waiting to be let in. But verse 22 is actually saying that that approach is not quite right. It's true as far as it goes, but it is unbalanced. Because you see, our first task should be to tell our unbelieving friends and family that they will meet Jesus one day face to face whether they like it or not. And the really urgent question, therefore, arising from this is have they thought about that? Are they ready for it? I mean, it may not be very politically correct, but it is reality. Now, we're living in times here in this country where justice 
is a very big deal indeed and people are increasingly concerned about it. Rightly so. Well, as Christians, we have the great good news that the justice which Jesus dispenses is perfect. On the last day, there will be no gross miscarriage of justice and there will be no surprises because Jesus Christ sees straight into every human heart. And when we die and we meet him face to face, Jesus will simply confirm the decision that we've made about him in this life. And there is no possibility, no possibility, of the guilty walking away scot-free. But for Christians it is different. The experience we have when we die and the judgment of the last day actually hold no terrors for us at all because Christ himself has already guaranteed a not guilty verdict. So in this passage, if we are amongst those who have heard his word and believed it and are basing our lives upon it, we will not be condemned. And uh, in the meantime, as John puts it in his first letter, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and he is the atoning sacrifice for all our sins. Will you bow with me and let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we we thank you for giving us a perfect revelation of yourself in the words and works of Christ. Please give each one of us the discipline to study these works and words in the Gospel. And open our eyes to see you, to see you in him. And as we do so, please give us grace to honour and worship Jesus as we honour and worship you. And Father, during Lent, help us to remember that you have entrusted all judgment to Jesus and that everybody will stand before Jesus on the last day whether they want to or not. So, Father, give us new opportunities before Easter to share Jesus with those who don't yet know you. And we ask it in his most precious name.